We have another strange parable today. Did you notice? Jesus told the first one, a group of them, as you remember, he was eating with uh, tax collectors and sinners, criticized by the Pharisees. He said people have value enough that God is interested in seeking and finding those that are lost and having them back in their right place. Then he talked to the disciples with the Pharisees listing in, as we saw last week, that there's a landowner who's very rich, has a manager looking after his land, and he has these um, tenants that are paying to use the land and giving riches, giving what they need to their community. The landowner was becoming rich. The tenant was about to be fired, remember? And he figured out a way in which his future was secure. Talk to us about the value of people. The Pharisees, after hearing this, not just criticized Jesus, but they ridiculed him. There's a couple of quick sayings that follow that Jesus gives, very quick, seem to be out of place, and Luke had a penchant of making sure that some Jesus saints found a, some place in his teaching that they were there. So we have in the mix of this a statement about divorce and remarriage. Uh, very clear. Jesus says, I'm against it. And then he tells this story. And I think this story of today is directed to those Pharisees and their ridiculing. Now, you have it in your bulletin. I encourage you to take it out, uh, follow along with it. You have an interesting set of circumstances. Let me give you some background before you hear the scripture, let me give you some background as to what you will be hearing. First of all, Jesus is still on his journey to Jerusalem. He has told the, the disciples that he is going there to die and be resurrected. They're still confused about that. He will say it again and then another time. Still the confusion will exist. But he is his face is set towards Jerusalem. It is set towards the sacrifice he will give for our redemption. He now takes a story that is, shall we say, a contemporary story of the time. Best of any other time. Then the time is pretty vast because we're looking back centuries, millenniums actually. He takes something that people knew. It really came out of Egypt, about some guy that had been with the gods, that had come back and was born into a family and showed his father the way things were expected in the afterlife that was to come. And it showed a reversal that somebody that had riches didn't have them in two positions, then showing somebody that was poor had been reversed and was blessed and highly accounted for in the community. This story theme was taken by a couple of others. 
in that period, and Jesus is grabbing something that is known, and he's restructuring it for his purposes. This restructuring, it talks about a gap that exists between heaven and hell. Hades is a word that is used. Sheol is another word that is used for it uh, in interpretation. Now, I've heard a number of sermons on the rich man and Lazarus. And from an Adventist perspective, uh, a place that communicates after death does not happen until the second coming. We know that. And the preacher has taken this to prove the point of what it is like when a person dies, where Scripture says that a man that dies knows not anything, that there is a resurrection, that there is a hope, and that anything that is of torment is for a short period and not a long period. You know the, the song and dance with that. When they do that with this story, you miss some of the points. And so let's let that stand. We can look at that at a later time. But let's look at the essence of the story and see what it may be telling us. Now, I want to go to the text a little bit and point out some things uh, so that when you hear it read to you, hear it presented, you will understand some of the things that are taking place in the text. First of all, this is the only parable of Jesus where someone is named, where a personal name is applied and given to someone. And it is not the rich man, it's the poor man. The poor man is given the name Lazarus. Now there is one other Lazarus in the New Testament, and that's someone that was raised from the dead. It was Mary and Martha's brother. Jesus had come after he had died and Mary and Martha said, if you had only been here, he would not have died. And he talked about, the talked about rising again and says, I know the daughter said, the sister said, that will happen in the resurrection. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. He came forth to life. It's rather interesting. Two very distinct gospels. And by the way, when you read a gospel... Try not to go to everything in the multiple Gospels. Let that one particular reading stand. You don't have to prove Luke by Mark or Luke by Matthew. There are some things that uh, are a part of why it may inform the text. But let that text stand because it is a piece of literature that is written to a specific community where Matthew writes to Jewish Christians. Mark is the first one to write, probably gets his words from Peter, and puts it out there and gives an established approach. Luke is to Gentiles. John is writing years and years later, and he takes a whole different turn on the approach to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when you read John, read it within John, not forcing Mark or Luke to say what John is saying. And so we will look at Luke. And here is Lazarus, a named person. God is my help is what it means. Now, you may not know this, but Lazarus 
is a New Testament orientation of a Hebrew name from the Old Testament, Eleazar. Now I can say, now which Eleazar? Do you know an Eleazar in the Old Testament? Yeah, there are nine of them. Very minor characters. Uh, I should say eight in the Old Testament. There's one in the New Testament, um, and that is in Luke's genealogy of Jesus. Somewhere in that intertestamental period, one of the ancestors of Jesus through Joseph was an Eleazar. But the Eleazar, you may know, goes back to Genesis, and he's a servant. He's Eleazar, the servant of Abraham. Now, Abraham, as you know in the story, had trouble having children. Probably his wife, because after she died, he had five boys from another lady. But Eleazar initially was probably considered on the part of Abraham to become the heir. This was allowed to take place in the code that he knew of the time, the legal code uh, of Hammurabi. He also considered a close relative, Lot, as an heir moved away. He tried to have a child through Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar, had a son, Ishmael, as an heir, and eventually through Sarah, at 90 years old, anyone 90 here today? How would you like to have kids at 90? Oh, man. It was tough having kids in my 20s. Even tough enough having them now, as great as they are. But here, Sarah had a child. And Eleazar, when the son was old enough, was instructed and told to go to the home country and find a wife for Isaac, which he did. Eleazar was a servant of Abraham, which is a form of Lazarus. Did you know that? That was interesting when I looked at it this week to find that out. Now, it says that both the rich man and Lazarus died. It says the rich man was buried. Lazarus may not have even been buried. It's not even suggested there. And it says that the rich man goes to Hades. Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham. In your rendition here, it says to Abraham's side. I want you to think about the bosom of Abraham and what that can imply. The story opens with a rich man who's dressed in purple and he's eating sumptuously every single day. When they gathered at table, the table was set out and where you sat at the table was important. Well, you did not sit at the table. You reclined at the table. Have you ever tried eating reclined? Reclined? 
This could be the reason why there was food under the table. It was kind of a, a messy process then as it would be now. That's why Lazarus was hoping from some of the crumbs from under the table because they were messy eaters because of the way they came to the table. But the table was arranged that in the center, the most important person was at that position. The second most in person was to the right, the third to the left, the fourth to the second to the right, the fifth to the second to the left, and so on around the table for all the guests. Now, if you counted Lazarus as perhaps being at the rich man's table, if the table stretched out to the gate where he was, that was the furthest away and did not have even access to the crumbs under the table. But let's think of it further. Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham. It is a phrase that could relate to a person being at table. That if they were there together and Lazarus was at the bosom, he was at the closest position of the feasting table. You see that? Lazarus had the prime spot. And the rich man was in the other place. Now the rich man eventually gets a name. I don't know if you've caught that. They call him Dives, D-I-V-E-S. When the Greek New Testament was eventually translated into contemporary language of the community, which at that time this translation took place, was Latin, the word for rich was dives. And sometimes when you read stories or read comments about this particular parable, dives will be the name given to the rich man. So here's Lazarus, Dives, and Abraham. Lazarus, who could also be Eleazar. Now it says that the rich man was clothed in purple. You know the saying is when you're old you can wear purple. Um, purple represented royalty. It was extremely expensive. There was a mollusk that would be taken, killed, broken open, and out of a gland, they might be lucky to get a drop or two of a purple coloring that would be used in the dye. Now, the vats that they would dye clothing in would be, you have to, in a sense, baptize the cloth into the water and bring it up to have the effect of the dye. And that was taken a drop at the time, and it was work done by the Phoenicians and the Syrians, and they had a monopoly on the process. And so you see purple in some of the tabernacle garb, in what the priest wore. Solomon sat on a pillow of purple. The prized lady of um, Proverbs 31, the ideal wife, wore purple. The high priest wore purple. 
the harlot in the book of Revelation wore purple. And we have a lady by the name of Lydia who sold purple. Expensive, expensive clothing, symbol of a high position. Now, the rich man we see had five brothers who followed more or less in his footsteps. Now, let me take you one other slight direction on this. The Pharisees had ridiculed Jesus. They were connected with the leadership, uh, a group of people that tried to keep the church, the uh, synagogues and the Jewish people pure and on track. And as they would do that, they called what Jesus was saying into, into question. The leadership that controlled, that directed the community back in Jerusalem, at the head of it was a high priest. The high priest was Caiaphas. Caiaphas, as a high priest, dressed in purple. He would eat sumptuously every day because a priest ate from what was sacrificed on the altar. And there was a lot that was sacrificed. There was an abundance that was there. And it was not necessarily shared as it should. And it is interesting to note that Caiaphas had five brothers. And there are some that have wondered whether or not the story was told to these Pharisees that ridiculed, that said the person who is the utmost in your mind in the Jewish community fits this particular character. It's a possibility here. Now, one other thing before we hear the scripture, we're going to, if those that are doing it, if you want to come up right now, grab a microphone and we will uh, hear the scripture. Remember what, he, what uh, Lazarus wanted? If he could only have a crumb from the table, just a crumb. In Hades, notice what. The rich man wants. It's only a drop. Crumb, insufficient, insufficient to keep Lazarus alive. A drop, insufficient to provide what was being requested. But yet that is a factor that plays in the story. But let's hear the story now. There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades... Where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. 
Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water, cool my my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. Child, remember that during your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. These are the words of our Lord. And thanks be to God for those words. I should have mentioned a little bit, the chief priest was a Sadducee, kind of a group, a party, almost a political party in that period. Sadducees had a basic belief. They did not believe in angels, and angels are included in the story that Jesus told. They did not believe in the resurrection, and the resurrection is part of it. Well, what can we learn from this? First of all, I think you need to note what Abraham said, there is a great chasm between Lazarus and the rich man. And you can't get there from here. There's an old story about uh, someone traveling in New England. Uh, the farmers were kind of crusty and interesting, and he stopped. He got lost, and he stopped and asked the farmer, says, I want to go to, uh, let's say, Woodstock, Vermont. And the farmer said, well, what you do is you continue down the road about two and a half miles. There's about four mailbox boxes on the right side. You make a left turn there. And you go about, uh, and he says, no, that, that's not going to work. He says, go back the way you came, and you'll see a house on the right that is white, that has a red barn behind it, and there's a country store across it. Continue on about a half a mile and go to your right about, no, no, that's not going to work. He tried another approach and finally said, look, you can't get there from here. This is the issue. You can't get there from Abraham to the rich man or the rich man to Abraham. There is a chasm. This puts an urgency, I think, for us in the reality that the choices we make today are significant. It gives an urgency to what you do in your life in your choice of who you follow and what is important. Let me outline it at least as briefly as I can. We are children of God. We are part of the family of God. We have been offered and have received by the fact that you are here in this place God's gift of redemption. 
You are a part of God's saved people. Amen? Don't you ever forget that. Your salvation requires nothing on your part. It is done for us on Calvary's cross. You are in the family. Now, the family has a business. And what you are invited to do is to be part of the family's business. And that family business includes forgiveness and it includes compassion. You, as a part of the family of God in life here and now, are invited to participate in that business of forgiveness and compassion. Jesus did not come to save a theology, a concept, an idea. Did not come to save a building, a day, holy money. Jesus came to redeem people. And people are the only part of significance in what is the kingdom of God that is even here and yet in the future. Make the right choice. Choose today. Because in choosing following God, you choose the business that God is in. In this business that God is in, this matter of compassion, requires us to be aware of each other in the community. I've been in a number of churches where it's very easy to gripe about this person or that person or they can't do this or they are not able or they're not fit or they should not be there. We do it with outside of the church. You look at that person over there uh, walking down the street, would never fit within our community. Look at the way he's walking. Look at what he, well, look at how she's dressed. Look at this, look at that. We categorize people and separate them. God's people are all of the people. God is a father of all humanity. And in that regard, we are brothers and sisters, all of us with each other. And as such, we have a responsibility to see that one does not have too little when we may have too much. When God came to Abraham, God said, I want all the world to be blessed through you. In other words, God needed a group of people that could begin to be his hands, his feet, his voice in the world and bring people to an understanding of what redemption is in Jesus Christ eventually. What happened was Israel became self-focused on doing the right things, on wearing the right clothes, on eating the right foods, on being in the right places. All good things. But that became the religion instead of the association of people together with people. You know, this is a great thing about Sabbath, that it brings the people of God together with God for community. It isn't thou shalt keep the Sabbath and if you don't, you're going to be whatevered. 
It is so you and I can come together and celebrate the goodness of God. Nothing else. For some reason, when we legalize certain parameters, we lose each other. And we put ourselves in the categories of rich man, poor man. And though, as, La as a rich man knew Lazarus' name, we have absolutely no association. Not only are we to share the good news of Jesus Christ, but we are to share the resources God has given us. We have them for the purpose of stepping out in behalf of God and saying, here's help. This balances things. We have a responsibility of being God's hands and feet in God's kingdom that is in the here and now, not in the kingdom that is just to come. So the rich man said, well, why don't you send Lazarus back? And he can tell my brothers what they need to do. And I think Abraham's word is important for us. Abraham says, they have enough. What do they have? Well, then they had Moses and the prophets. Abraham is saying, that is enough for them to know what they need to do in relation to people in their community. And as you studied this lesson this last quarter, and you may want to keep it and look at it again, Duffy, who is president of ADRA, clearly outlines the role of the church as it relates to community. We have enough. In fact, you and I have even more because we have the New Testament. We have Jesus Christ, His life and His example. And even though Abraham said a resurrection what was not needed. We have a resurrection. Here's the problem. We want to believe based on something radical, something uh, visual, something that is great. As they said in football, uh, a razzle-dazzle type of play. Resurrection the rich man thought would be a razzle-dazzle play and would affect his brothers. Well, they had been to his house. They had seen Lazarus. It would not make a difference to him. All the razzle-dazzle type of miracles that Jesus did didn't affect a lot of the people. Did you notice that? We know that when people shouted, crucify him, crucify him, that in the group of, the, of those people were those that had seen lame men walk, blind see, leopards healed, lives changed, people who were dead brought back to life, yet they still shouted, crucify him, crucify him. 
We have sufficient in Scripture and in Jesus Christ to know what is significant for us to do. And so what we have here, I think, is a call for us to be about the Father's business. The business of compassion. The business of forgiveness. Remember, Jesus was lost. And this is in Luke, by the way. Was lost. His parents had headed home. He was 12 years old. He was in the temple. Took him three days to find him. And said, what have you done to us? You know, a good mother stepped forward and said, you've embarrassed us. You didn't come with us. Where were you? He says, didn't you know that I wouldn't be about my father's business? We have that same business. Chapter or two later in Luke 4, Jesus goes home to Nazareth and he announces his ministry. He quotes from Isaiah and applies it to himself, basically saying, I have been called. I have been called to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I have been called to bring good news. What's good news? That's gospel, isn't it? I've been called to bring good news to the poor. It was his work. It is ours too. We're looking for the second coming of Christ. We hope that it is soon. But we know that it has been delayed, and the Scripture expected it to be delayed. To be delayed. And I'm jumping from Luke right now to Matthew. Bear with me. The disciples wanted to know when he would come again. Look for a sign. He says, if you knew the time, you would be watching. But there is a delay. Chapter 25 talks about the delay. And in the talking about the delay, in the last parable, the last collection of sayings where he talks about the sheep and the goats. The goats are excluded. The sheep go in to the kingdom. And he says, why? Well, I was sick and you visited me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And it goes on. It is Jesus and they said, when did we do this to you? And Jesus says, when you did this to the least of these, my people, you do it to me. It is this compassion that God has called us to. It is a family business. We're a part of the family. Let's get to work.